Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, as you may know, this show is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, which is where the learning lives. On that network, there is a show you may be aware of, When Diplomacy Fails. This show is a classic of the medium, and lest you doubt my word, Zach is celebrating his show's five-year anniversary this month. I'm actually still a little bit starstruck to be in the same podcast network with Zach Twomley, but even more insanely cool, Zach asked me to participate in the festivities. Now, if you don't know the show, Zach discusses the causes and outcomes of military conflicts without dwelling too much on the actual nitty-gritty of the conflict itself. It's a lot of fun. For the five-year anniversary, Zach has gone back and gussied up his old original episodes, from back when he was still a college freshman, if you'll believe it. And he's asked a bunch of his fellow podcasters to join him to discuss the events of each episode. Zach and I talked about the Seven Years' War, which is one of my very favorite wars, actually, as it happens, and yet one that will sadly not be covered in Wittenberg to Westphalia. That's right, folks. I will talk for months about some obscure Italian family, but not about one of my very favorite wars. Also, now you know that I have favorite wars, which makes me feel a little bit dirty. Anyway, I'm just thrilled to have been able to talk about the war in any kind of podcastery context, let alone to have been able to do it with Zach, who, yeah, he was as fun to talk to as you would expect. So, go check out the new content if you have been a listener to the show, and if you have not listened to When Diplomacy Fails before... Now is a great time to go check it out. It's on iTunes. You can check out the Agora Podcast Network page. Yada yada, you'll find it. I trust you. Now, equally as exciting as me getting to do a show with the inestimable Zach Twomley, this month we have three new knights in our realm. Patreon Carrie shall hereafter be known as Lady Carrie the Contrary. Friend of the show Christine shall hereafter be known far and wide as Christine, the Ceramic Lady of Metro West. And finally, we have PayPal donor and Patreon, Yusuf, Hammer of the Exposures, and Raven Barrister of the Royal Mishpucha. Hail and well met to all. May your fame last longer than the forgotten takeout Chinese food in my fridge. If you want me to come up with some kind of completely ridiculous name for you, head over to the store page on the website. There you will find a breakdown of the swag you might attain by joining our disreputable mercenary horde, as well as a much-neglected bibliography page, show notes, and a farcical bio of myself. Let there be much rejoicing. On with the show. Upon the king's command, his body was raised up with full honors and transported to Vams. This man, who was great and illustrious through the virtue of both his soul and his body, was buried there, accompanied by the tears and lamentations of the Franks. Quote from Wudukind of Corvée's 
The Deeds of the Saxons, as read by Justin Wu. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia through the wars of the Reformation. This is episode 31, Armageddon. Last episode, we discussed two dramatic stories. First, the somewhat tragic rise and fall of Berengar II as King of Italy. Second, the adventurous courtly romance of damsel in distress Adelaide and Otto, her Prince Charming. As we concluded, however, I hinted at trouble to come, as Liudolf, Otto's son by his first marriage, slipped away from the wedding festivities. We pick up today shortly thereafter, as Otto too heads north. The reasons for this return north are just not clear. Many historians ascribe this to some sort of unrest or disturbance. Given events later in the history of Germano-Italian relations, this is a reasonable assumption, particularly since Otto seems to have not left his regent, Conrad the Red, with much of an army. This looks like something of a hurried and forced retreat. Plus, spoiler alert, there would be a rebellion in East Francia within a few years of his withdrawal. Frustratingly, however, none of our sources give us much evidence as to why Otto withdrew. They just say he did. We do know the following suggestive facts. 1. Otto's son Leodolf had left Italy early, in something of a huff, possibly after arguing with his father. 2. Archbishop Frederick of Mainz, a powerful man who had allied himself with at least one of the previous rebellions, had not come south of the Alps. 3. Despite good relations with the Pope, Agapetus II, that Pope had apparently rebuffed feelers put out by Otto to revive the title of Emperor of the Romans. 4. Otto left his son-in-law, Conrad, with a small army, which was insufficient to deal with the fact that 5. Berengar II was still at large. Given the events that are about to unfold, the reasons for Otto's actions are potentially important, but the chroniclers give us no narrative to tie these things together. Professional historians of this era tend to glaze over this missing information, as is right and proper given the lack of information. But I think I will hide behind my amateur historian status for a second and suggest a few alternatives. 1. Otto knew a rebellion was coming up north and hurried to try and stop it, and we don't know what it was because... When Otto showed up, everyone slunk back into the shadows until he was distracted again later. This is not outside the realm of possibility, and would portray the small army left to Conrad the Red as a result of a hurried departure. 2. Otto figured he was done in Italy, that the country was pacified, and was eager to get his army home. In support of this narrative is how quickly Italy folded and the popularity Otto seemed to enjoy there, combined with the still unsettled nature of the Slavic and Danish borders, the delicate balance in West Francia, and the fact that Otto had brought all his chief officials with him south of the Alps. And, last but certainly not least, given what we've said, the unprofessional nature of his feudal levies. Yes, in some sense they were professional soldiers, but they also had land to attend to and positions to attend to. So they did have to go home on a certain regular basis or things would start to go badly. So maybe Otto had no specific threat in mind, he just felt that, you know, things are fine in Italy, so it's time to get home before something does go wrong. The fact that the Pope hesitated to crown him emperor may have made Otto not want to overstay his welcome. In this narrative, the small army Otto left for Conrad was simply an underestimate of the resistance remaining in Italy. 3. A combination of 1 and 2 in some respects. 
Otto felt that Italy was pacified, but was also preoccupied by a specific external threat, namely the Danes. Here's where the way a story is told can make things a bit confusing. Simply plotting through events chronologically can be dull, and so historians, including me, tend to thematically group things. But this can put things out of context in this situation. By my reading, Otto invaded Denmark and devastated the countryside, finally ending that long war the year after he invaded Italy. So he invaded Italy, took care of things there, went back north of the Alps for the winter, and then went and invaded Denmark, and then came back before everything else started to happen that we're going to talk about for the rest of the episode. The historians tend to place this story with his minor campaigns, and don't seem to credit this as having an impact on his Italian campaign, and there doesn't seem to be a specific event necessarily that made him invade Denmark, it was just sort of him finishing up that war. It seems to me fairly unlikely that Otto's invasion of Denmark was so spur of the moment that it would not have been on his mind the year before. After all, we're told he ravaged the entire country. So I don't know which of these options is right. I lean towards two or three, as I tend to believe more in incompetence than in conspiracy, but that is a personal opinion. In any case, as a result of these disturbances, whatever they were, Otto was forced to take the majority of his army and head north, leaving a very small army in Italy under his son-in-law, Conrad the Red of Lorraine, to finish off Berengar II, who, you'll recall, had fled to his base of support in northwestern Italy. Now, Conrad is actually going to be something of an important character today, so let's quickly say that he was originally from Franconia. He was a scion of the family of Ebenhard and was thus a key ally of Otto's, with long family links back to the days of Henry the Fowler and beyond. The Conradin family had long had designs on Lorraine, and when basically all of Otto's other relatives failed at the job of governing Lorraine without trying to kill Otto, Conrad was the one put in charge of Lorraine after Otto took it off of the western Franks. Just to keep an eye on things, Otto would eventually make his favorite younger brother, Bruno, uh, Archbishop of Cologne, which was right in the middle of Lorraine. Still, Conrad was clearly a very important lieutenant, and was Otto's main man on the ground in the management of the Western Frankish situation. The fact that Conrad was married to Otto's daughter from his first marriage likely didn't hurt his career prospects. Unfortunately for everyone involved, Otto's removal from Italy left Conrad in a position somewhat similar to that of Berengar II at the start of the last episode. He'd been made regent for Otto, meaning that he was effectively king in Otto's absence, but he was being asked not only to rule northern Italy, a region which it is safe to say was in an advanced state of governmental collapse, but also to bring Berengar II to heel. To do this, he had at his disposal a small army left by Otto and, we may assume, the rights, privileges, and income of the King of the Lombards. But, as we discussed last time, the rights, privileges, and income of the King of the Lombards was kind of at a low ebb just at the moment. Unlike Berengar, Conrad was the duke of a large and prosperous province, namely Lorraine and large parts of Franconia, so he had some resources of his own to call upon, but that province was far to the north. On the positive side, Conrad was facing an enemy in Berengar who had just seen his realm collapse without a fight, so he had clear momentum on his side. But one of the ever-present questions throughout history is, how do you translate momentum into real-world gains? Well, the answer is you negotiate. Conrad may have had a weak hand militarily, but in a negotiation, he seemed to have all the cards. Berengar was on the run, facing a massive empire as his enemy. Now is the time to strike a deal for both of them, and so they did. The deal was pretty straightforward. East Francia had a claim to northern Italy through Adelaide and the right to rule it. Ruling it would eventually involve setting up someone as regent, duke, king, whatever of the region. 
Berengar had a claim to be king, and was very eager to not be killed, imprisoned, or sent into exile, and had just been shown very clearly the extent to which he could resist an invasion from East Francia, that is to say, not at all. So, Berengar would be allowed to resume his rule as king, but would do so as an ally of Otto, and would recognize Otto's overlordship. That is to say, Berengar would continue to rule Lombardy, and Otto would recognize his right to rule, but Berengar would recognize that Otto was his superior. With an agreement reached, Conrad and Berengar headed for Otto's court to have the treaty formally ratified by the king, and to have Berengar uh, formally given the pat on the head by Otto. But this treaty did not go over that well. And as much as Conrad's case here is pretty sympathetic, you can probably guess why, right? I mean, you remember last episode. Let me put it this way. When the messengers went ahead of Conrad to brief Otto on the contents of the treaty, the messenger would have delivered his message to the court as a whole. On Otto's right at the court may have been his wife, Adelaide, whose husband Berengar had murdered and whom Berengar had personally tortured, possibly. On Otto's left may have been Otto's brother, Henry the Quarrelsome, who was now Duke of Bavaria, lands just on the other side of the Alps from Friuli. Not to put too fine a point on it, Henry wanted the passes to Friuli. Also the stuff on the other side of the path, actually just all of Friuli, if we're being honest. So when Conrad and Berengar II arrived at court, they were kept waiting for weeks. And then when Otto met with them, they were informed that Berengar would have to beg Otto for forgiveness, submit to punishments, and that while he could continue to be the king of Lombardy, he would do so only as Otto's vassal. Furthermore, the March Duchy of Friuli was being given to Henry and would be renamed the March Duchy of Verona. In other words, Otto was altering the agreement. Pray that he does not alter it further. Berengar II was not pleased. More importantly, perhaps, Conrad was humiliated. He had worked hard and staked his reputation on this treaty, which he felt was in the Empire's best interests. He had done this for his king, probably at great personal expense given the state of Italy at the time, and in recompense he had his work essentially torn up, his honor damaged, and to top it all off, the king's traitorous brother was given a massive reward that he hadn't earned except by, you know, not being a traitorous little whelp for once. Grumbling and fuming, we can imagine Conrad slouching away into the hallway outside of court, where his attention was caught by a sharp hiss. There in the shadows, let us imagine two shifty-looking characters. Otto's eldest son, Leodolf, and Archbishop Frederick of Mainz. Leodolf's relationship with Otto was not in the best shape, I think it's fair to say. According to several sources, Leodolf had first damaged his relationship with Otto when he preemptively invaded Italy while Otto was gathering his troops for the invasion. It is a bizarre affair, but almost all the sources agree that something of this kind happened. Possibly wanting to ingratiate himself with Otto, Leodolf invaded without many troops and without preparation. He was driven back, of course, and may have required some help from Otto to extract himself. Liutprand of Cremona spun this as a victory, of course, and Otto wept at the honor his son had done, whatever, brown noser. Anyway, against a competent enemy, this sort of half-baked preemptive invasion could have been very dangerous, and not just for Leodolf himself. It could have tipped off Berengar and allowed him to prepare his defenses. Otto was apparently not overly kind to Leodolf in the aftermath, which Leodolf resented. I mean, he was only trying to help. Shortly thereafter, of course, Leodolf watched his father remarry, which is often kind of an emotional issue for young men, even when they are not princes who are worried about succession issues. By the time of Conrad's humiliation, the situation would have been compounded by the fact that, yeah, Adelaide was pregnant. Rumors were already swirling that if the child was a boy, Leodolf would be replaced as Otto's heir. 
Our third conspirator may be something of a surprise, but that's largely down to some efficiencies that I've had to make as a storyteller. Let me remedy that now. Archbishop Frederick of Mainz had participated in some way in almost every rebellion against Otto since the start of his reign, encouraging uprisings, lending fiscal and even military aid from his not inconsiderable holdings. However, it should be said that he was not the best ally to the rebels, though. After Thetmar's rebellion, which Frederick had helped encourage, Frederick was one of the first people Otto confronted, at which point Frederick flipped and helped Otto defeat his brother. While he was not directly involved in Henry's uprising, he did talk Henry into trying to assassinate Otto when Henry was in prison afterwards. Of course, Otto could not up and kill a man of the cloth. Bad for the old Carolingian reputation, you know. So Freddy was always pardoned. But all this begs a question, does it not? Otto was all about the church. And protecting the church. And flooding the church with cash and prizes. So what was Frederick's deal? Again, the chroniclers fail us here probably as a result of the desire to portray the church favorably. Moments where the church opposed Otto are kind of swept under the rug by the church chroniclers of the time. The major exception being Pope John XII, who we may get to talk about at some point in the future. Regardless of the reasons, we're left with a fairly important question. Was Frederick alone in his opposition to Otto, or was he part of a larger undercurrent of the church? Obviously this is a false dichotomy, but let's run with it for argument's sake for now. In the one corner... Freddy is a completely selfish, self-seeking feudal aristocrat who used his position to foment rebellions in order to get more stuff. In support of this argument, Frederick and his predecessors, it should be said, were trying to get Mainz made into a primate seat. In other words, Mainz would be equal in status to Constantinople, Alexandria, Damascus, Jerusalem, and, depending on who you asked, Rome. The idea of a northern European primate see had had some support off and on probably since the time of Louis the Pious, but most notably during the scampish tenure of that troublemaker Hinkmar, he who was the bishop who blinded someone. Good times. Certainly an argument could be made that the church north of the Alps was marching to a very different tune to that south of the Alps already, even by this point. But by this time, by the time we're talking about, support for this idea outside of Mainz was really starting to ebb very seriously. There really wasn't any support for it outside of Mainz. Frederick would spend his entire episcopacy trying to push this idea, but to little result. And he may have blamed Otto. Part of that blame may have come from the fact that Frederick was not Otto's man. His ascendancy as archbishop predated Otto's rule. And it seems likely, given what we know of Henry the Fowler, that Henry did not have as much control over the church as Otto did. So Frederick may have felt frozen out of royal favor to some extent, particularly when Otto elevated his beloved younger brother, Bruno, to be Bishop of Cologne and then had Cologne made into an archbishopric. Otto was favoring his own guise at Frederick's expense, and Frederick may have been annoyed at getting frozen out of what he viewed as his fair share of the patronage. Though it should be said that some of this... Uh, other stuff that was going on, such as appointing Bruno as bishop and elevating the bishopric to be archbishopric, uh, a bunch of that happened after Frederick started creating trouble. So this may have been, you know, Otto counterbalancing Frederick. Let's put, a, put that aside, because there's still another way of viewing this, right? I mean, Otto had basically taken over the Church of East Francia. Contrary to what was supposed to be happening, people weren't being elected bishops in free and fair elections, if such a thing existed in the Middle Ages, which of course it didn't, and there was no expectation that they would, but the people weren't being appointed as bishops and abbots because of their churchliness, but because of their loyalty to Otto and how well it would do for Otto from a political standpoint. 
Men from families loyal to Otto were the ones who happened to be winning these elections. Pay no attention to the big men with swords. And then these institutions afterwards were given massive donations. Sure, it helped Otto rule East Francia more effectively, it kept chaos from breaking out, it helped them fight off the Magyars, but isn't that, you know, not the church's job to help Otto with all that stuff? Though few people in East Francia would oppose Otto at this time, we know that Otto didn't always get his way even with friendly popes, and spoiler alert, he would end up very much openly fighting with a later pope. So maybe Frederick was, you know, just giving voice to some sort of political or religious opposition to the way Otto was just dominating the church in East Francia. In later centuries, this very issue would be very, very explicitly a point of conflict between the emperors and the popes. But we don't hear hide nor hair of this in the chroniclers at this point. That said, the chroniclers were all being paid by Otto. Still, the Cluniac reforms which would inspire the later conflicts, were already beginning at this time. They predated Otto, and maybe, just maybe, the well-established educational institutions of Mainz had gotten some early whiff of these ideas that the church and the state should be separate and that the church should focus on religious affairs and not kowtow to the state. Maybe Frederick was opposing Otto for religious reasons, which were expunged from the record by the temporarily victorious majority opinion of Eastern Frankie at the time. We can't know for sure, but as I said going in, this is a false dichotomy. Frederick could have been motivated both by selfish and high-minded goals. He may not yet have had the vocabulary for expressing his more high-minded goals, or it could have been covered up. Given what we know, I think Frederick was primarily motivated by the relative loss of power for his see, something that his actions worsened with every rebellion. But Frederick was also probably able to gain support from those who had not been keyed in to Otto's patronage network, and for these people it would have been an obvious overstep of royal power to so cynically run roughshod over the church institutions. After all, it's very easy to stand on principle when you're on the losing side of the way things are. The fact remains, however, that this is all somewhat speculative on my part. Timothy Reuter suggests that Frederick only really participated in the First Rebellion, and then afterwards was just assumed to be involved in rebellions by other contemporaries. Obviously I disagree, but it should be said that things aren't clear here and we'll probably never know for sure. Now, there was one final piece at play in Otto's empire, and we've sort of discussed it, but I think I need to re-emphasize it, and that was the ethnic underpinnings of the stem duchies. You'll recall that the Stem Duchies were large territorial blocks incorporated into the Frankish Empire over the course of the Merovingian and Carolingian Wars of Expansion. As a tribe or kingdom was beaten, their territory was absorbed into the empire and put under the control of an official, and the territory retained the name and, to a large extent, the administration of the conquered tribe, just with someone else in charge who would remain loyal to the empire. The empire made efforts to assimilate the aristocracy and gain their loyalty, as that was easier than trying to wipe them out and start everything from scratch. Now, the actual political and ethnic unity of these territories is probably something that came and went. It's fairly clear that the political control that the dukes had over these lands was never truly monolithic, and that under Charlemagne, at least, definite efforts had been made to diffuse the actual power on the ground. In a process similar to what we've seen in Italy, however, over the period of the empire's disintegration, more and more of the rights and lands were brought into the hands of the dukes of the stem duchies. This should all be old hat. What I've not emphasized before now is that unlike the duchies in West Francia and in Italy, the duchies of East Francia were genuinely built on something approaching a national identity block, and this was reinforced by the preservation of these native institutions. 
That is to say, the tribes conquered by the Franks, while never really cohesive enough to be called anything other than tribes, had built up some form of social order and ethnic identity that was usually retained in the empire. Not trying to eliminate these identities made it easier to bring them into the fold, but it did create issues. Firstly, it certainly helped to accelerate the accumulation of power by the dukes once the central government began its disintegration under Louis the Pious and his sons. If the duke on the ground had the majority of state power, and his family had been king in the days before all these newfangled checks on his power showed up, it was pretty easy for those checks to start to fall away and for people to just be like, okay, well, of course we're going to obey this guy. And it should be said that this actually played pretty well into the strengths of the East Frankish kingdom. With just the stem dukes as people to win over, it was pretty easy to govern the kingdom. You just had to win over a couple families, and that was it. But we've covered all this before. Second, when Otto began his policy of subdividing the duchies, removing people he didn't like, empowering the clergy, etc., he was doing so to the backdrop of these ethnic blocs, whose primary loyalty was to their local power structure and identity, not to the people that Otto was bringing in. Now, this kind of thing came up a few times in the sources, but usually in situations where it wasn't a critical bit of context, so I kind of skimmed over it. But now, as Leodolf, Frederick, and Conrad set their plan in motion, they did so in the expectation that they would be able to secure help from mid-level and lower-level nobility that were disgruntled at being ruled by what they saw as foreigners. What the plotters didn't seem to realize was that this seam of discontent did not just underpin Otto's power, but the cohesion of the entire kingdom. As they prepared to set matches to the exposed bits of explosive, they did not realize that they were all standing on a land cobbled together from hand grenades. As often happens, the Civil War started off with a small skirmish. The conspirators raised an army, and Otto marched to meet them. But this was family, and Otto was a Frankish king, a Christian king, and forgiveness was his thing. He negotiated with the rebels and came away with a treaty that was favorable to their cause. He would recognize the treaty with Berengar II, and he would officially proclaim Leodolf as his heir. But he needed to ratify this treaty in a diet. When he got home, Adelaide and Henry got a good look at the treaty. Henry, of course, was going to lose a huge chunk of territory that he had just acquired from Berengar II. Adelaide may have been worried for the future of her newborn son if Leodolf were made king, but she was also distinctly not happy about Berengar getting off so easy. And so over the course of the diet, they talked Otto around, and ultimately he condemned the treaty and refused to honor it. As a result, the lands of the three conspirators rose in revolt, though they would claim not to be fighting Otto, but his wicked advisors, namely Henry the Quarrelsome. The conspirators held large portions of Lorraine, Swabia, and Franconia, but because of the non-monolithic nature of the stem duchies, they did not hold all those territories. So when they rose in revolt, it resulted in a full-on civil war, with neighbors fighting neighbors, people picking sides based on what was advantageous to them. Regardless, it's fair to say that about half the lands of the kingdom broke out in internal conflicts. And things just got worse. Henry, you'll remember, had only recently been made Duke of Bavaria. You will also recall that the family of Arnulf the Bad had traditionally held the land. Now, Henry's second-in-command was none other than Arnulf the Bad's son, Arnulf II. Rebellions broke out against Henry early in the conflict, but he managed to manage it. But then when he marched away to Otto's aid, Henry put Arnulf II in charge of suppressing the rebellions in Bavaria. Henry was not really very smart, I guess. Arnulf waited until Henry was, you know, out the door, down the road, and turned the corner, and then declared himself the true Duke of Bavaria, and the territory rose completely in revolt. There were more attempts at negotiation, all of which failed. Otto tried to add leverage to his position by officially stripping Conrad and Leodolf of their duchies in Lorraine and Swabia. 
Importantly, Conrad was replaced by Otto's youngest brother and closest ally, Archbishop Bruno of Cologne. For the rest of the Middle Ages, the lands of Lorraine would belong to the Archbishop of Cologne as much as they belonged to anyone. Now, these changes only gave Otto leverage if he could implement them, but they did actually have immediate impacts, because remember, Conrad and Leodolf were no more the native rulers of Lorraine and Swabia than Henry was the native ruler of Bavaria. In Conrad's case, his family had been trying to take over Lorraine for generations, and were not very popular, uh, very distinctly unpopular with the locals. And if Bruno wasn't a local duke, he was also, you know, on a mission from God. So a bunch of the local forces, in Lorraine at least, just up and switched sides. But then not enough to completely button up the territory for Otto. Instead, individual lords across the empire began to pick sides, in all likelihood picking whatever side would best let them settle old scores. As 953 came to an end, the majority of the empire was experiencing some kind of civil strife, even Saxony. Things looked pretty grim. Otto's salvation, oddly enough, came from further rebellions. With the Germans at each other's throats, the Slavs staged some limited revolts, which were joined by raiders from across the border. Hearing the news of successful raids, the Magyars again moved into Bavaria. If this wasn't bad enough, Leodolf knew that neither he nor Otto were prepared to fight off the rage of the Hungarians, and so he held a feast and tried to bribe the Hungarians to leave. Not a bad idea, but the optics were that Leodolf, who had rebelled against his own father, was now breaking bread with the pagan savages from the south. Sure, he said he was just trying to get them to leave, but maybe he invited them in to begin with, to make himself look more kingly? You remember the Magyars, don't you? What they did to this land in the bad old days before Henry the Fowler and his favorite son Otto had driven them off? We all lost relatives. That's right, you in the back. You lost an eye. You there. You lost a child. Are we going to let Leodolf sell our kingdom to these heathens? Such, at least, was the type of speech spread by Otto's agents. And this story would have played best in the very areas the rebels were strongest, which had been areas that were hardest hit by the Magyars, including Lorraine, Swabia, and Bavaria. In addition, around this time, Conrad's wife, Otto's daughter, happened to die. Now, one might expect this to make Conrad feel less tied to Otto, but remember, the famous Frankish clemency was only extended to family members. Conrad was suddenly not actually a family member, really, and with public opinion rapidly shifting, Conrad looked around, and hordes of Magyars were starting to show up, and, well, maybe this whole thing had gotten out of hand here. So Conrad moved rapidly to come to terms with Otto, with or without Leodolf. The two were publicly reconciled at a diet, and Conrad did penance, but was generally rehabilitated, though he never got his old duchy back. Leodolf almost was reconciled as well, but at the last minute, Henry the Quarrelsome showed up and accused Leodolf of inviting in the Magyars, Leodolf stormed off enraged, and Henry maybe had a satisfied little giggle to himself when Otto wasn't looking. The war now entered its penultimate stage. The rebellions in Saxony, Franconia, and Lorraine were repressed. Leodolf fled to Regensburg in Bavaria, followed by Otto. Otto demanded unconditional surrender, and Leodolf refused. The siege lasted for months, and starvation set in. Arnulf II was killed in the fighting, and Leodolf managed to flee to Swabia, his own territory. After several bloody but indecisive battles, Leodolf was forced to capitulate. A diet was called for December 954. And the final deal was thus. The treaty with Berengar II was scrapped, and Leodolf was put in charge of bringing Berengar II to heel. Conrad was given command of the army that would face the Hungarians. 
Bruno would return to Lorraine, and Henry would regain control of the burned-out shell of Bavaria, but also the distinctly prosperous and not bombed-out March Duchy of Verona, with all its trade connections and prosperous agriculture. The war was over. Otto reasserted his control over the, all the stem duchies, kicked out the last of the Slavic raiders, and made sure that all the allies knew he was back on top. But then rumors began to reach Otto of one enemy left in the field. Lechfield, as it happens. <laughs> A little historian pun there, for your pleasure. <laughs> uh, Lechfield. Anyway, the Battle of Augsburg has many names. It took place outside the city of Augsburg, on a field, along the banks of the Lech River, and so it's known either as the Battle of Lechfield or Augsburg, depending on who you're talking. That's funny, funny pun. In either case, Otto learned of the coming invasion early in 955. He sent troops under Archbishop Olmo, a lot of archbishops floating around, by the way. Archbishop Olmo went to hold Augsburg, while Otto gathered his army at the crossings of the Danube, thus funneling the Magyars west towards Augsburg. The Magyars dutifully besieged the city as Otto gathered his men. Archbishop Bruno was sent back to Lorraine with the troops of that territory. You'll remember that two episodes back, when Otto had driven the Magyars off in the first year of his reign, they had actually retreated to the west, into Lorraine, and western Francia, and then returned home via Italy. So Brother Bruno was there to prevent their escape in that direction. The Saxon troops would also not be joining in the battle for the most part. The Slavs still needed watching, well, almost all the Slavs. Now that Otto was back on top, King Boleslaus of Bohemia could see which way the wind was blowing, and anyway, he had likely no love for the Magyars, and so he actually sent troops, who joined Otto as they marched towards Augsburg. On the march, more men gathered. Leodolf joined, and he put his men under his father's command. Finally, a day away from Augsburg, one final contingent joined the army. Duke Conrad the Red, with a large group of Franconian knights, marched into camp, showing clearly that the old rift was less important than saving the kingdom from the pagan savages from the east. Thus it was that, in good spirits, Otto's army marched the last few miles towards Augsburg. They were unified, at last, well supplied, guided by Henry's troops from Bavaria, who were on their home turf. If the army was reduced from what it might have been by the Civil War, then the men in it were bloodied veterans, marching for God and King against enemies that, while terrifying, could be beaten, who deserved to be beaten, and had to be beaten. Given the importance of this battle, it's not surprising that we have a lot of details from the chroniclers. What is more surprising is that the details do not show Otto as some sort of military genius. On the contrary, the Magyars, as was their wont, outmaneuvered the relatively slow-moving Frankish army once again, but the years of work his family had put into the military of their kingdom now paid off in spades for Otto. The setup was thus. The field was actually a fairly hilly area, with Otto's camp on one side of the Lech and the Hungarians on the other. Otto arranged his line on his side of the river, with Conrad on the right, the Swabians on the left, and himself in the middle. The Bohemians were not entirely trusted, and so they were left to guard the camp. The Hungarians attacked the front immediately, sending in volleys of arrows, and then closing in to fight. In all likelihood, their arrows hit the shields of the infantry, who were unmoved, experienced men from many battles. They held their ranks against the onslaught and fought back with spears. Unbeknownst to Otto, he was outflanked by the main Hungarian army, who moved around Otto's left to attack the Bohemians in the camp, and then came and attacked the Swabians from the rear and front simultaneously. But the Swabians did not flee. Their armor offered some protection from Hungarian arrows, even when they were hit from behind, and so they began a fighting retreat to join Otto's position in the center. 
Seeing what was happening, Otto ordered Conrad the Red to move from the right, around the back of Otto's position, and to fall on the Magyar's flank. This is not an easy maneuver, either from a discipline standpoint or from a mobility standpoint, but Conrad gathered his horsemen from his line and began moving through the hills beyond Otto's line. The infantry may have held the line or followed as best they could. With the rolling hills of the Lech field screening the move, the Magyars did not see this coming. The Magyars were also weighed down with the booty captured in the camp, and were probably somewhat tired from the actions already taken that day. In any case, when Conrad the Red came upon them, they were not expecting him. They were likely facing the wrong way, and were disorganized. Conrad's men fell on the Magyars, closing in for hand-to-hand fighting before the Magyars could escape. The Hungarians got off a volley at most. Conrad himself was killed by an arrow, but it was too late for this to stop his men's advance. The Magyars could not stand up to the heavy German knights in hand-to-hand fighting, and they broke for the river. Their horses, weighed down and tired, stumbled on the slippery pebbles of the river and, and couldn't make it up the steep bank on the other side, and they were massacred in the water. The fleeing remnants of the army were pursued systematically by the German army for several days, and hunted by the enraged local populace. Dozens of high-ranking Magyar nobles were captured, including their king, and presented to Otto. Otto had them hung before the gates of the city in a line. As I said in the walking tour episode on the Balkans, the Battle of Augsburg was the end of the Magyar raids, at least the major ones we know about. After this, the Magyars would be forced to adapt to a new world order. To the south, the Eastern Roman Empire had revived and was expanding into the Balkans in ways not seen in centuries. To the north, the Bohemians had begun to coalesce into a powerful kingdom, now allied with Otto's kingdom, just to the west of them. Otto himself had just massacred the largest army that the Magyars had sent out in a generation, and to the south, Otto was in the process of consolidating his hold of northern Italy, blocking off the Hungarians from that angle as well. The Hungarians would respond by rapidly reinventing themselves from the Magyar horsemen into a western-oriented Christian power over a rather amazing 50-year period. But the implications of this change for a wider European history may be even greater. But was this the end of the migration period? Was this the most important battle in Western history? We're going to have to discuss that next time. Those implications are going to have to wait. And we're going to discuss next time how we should view the Battle of Augsburg in history as a way of sort of wrapping up our discussion of the early Middle Ages. As, in my view, we can treat it as the end of the early Middle Ages. But for today, let us review. After Otto beat Berengar, he left Conrad the Red holding the bag. Conrad got what he thought was a good settlement, but Otto rejected the deal as the result of the influence of Henry the Quarrelsome and of Adelaide. Conrad, Otto's eldest son Louisdolf, and Archbishop Frederick conspired to raise a rebellion, which gradually became very widespread due to ethnic and political tensions. It nearly tore the kingdom apart, but the reappearance of the Magyars caused many rebels to switch their allegiance back to the king. Otto and the rebels ultimately reconciled, but no one was sure if it would stick until when the Magyars came again, Both men came to help their king. Otto won a crushing victory, largely due to Conrad's timely action, but Conrad the Red died in the effort, a hero in the end. Uncommonly for the time, Conrad the Red was buried in a cathedral in Worms. This was a privilege usually reserved for clergy and for royalty. Thank you all for listening. Remember to check out the website, and I hope you will all join me next time for another episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.